Okay, everybody. It's great to see you all. Um, I'd like to welcome back Rabbi Yonatan Alevi. It's always a tremendous pleasure to, to have you with us. Um, and you don't need any introduction. You're very much a, a beloved rabbi of, of Achabura. And um, this series has been extremely popular and we're learning so much. And I think we can dive right into it. Um, and I don't know if you want to have questions in the middle before we just keep it as, as it's been going, whatever you prefer so that people know now. Um, and we'll go with whatever you, whatever you want. Okay. Uh, that's, thank you for the non-introductory introduction. I actually appreciate that very much. Um, when it comes to questions, let me just say again what I've asked about that. This is a shul. So part of a shul is that you should be able and feel free to ask questions. On the other hand, I'm trying to teach information in one shul, which would usually take me a whole series on its own. Um, and so what I would ask is only questions that interfere with your ability to continue learning going forward. Uh, things that are absolutely necessary and crucial. Things that are not, I will stick around as you've known me to do in the past for as long as you possibly need me here uh, to answer all of the questions that come up. So I, for me, it's the middle of the day. So please don't feel shy to unmute yourself and ask a question, but um, if there are more tangents or discussions or let's leave those for the end of the show, if that's possible. All right. Um, are we still waiting for people to come in or we're good to go? Bechavod, bechavod. Thank you so much. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, shachom yango. So we are in our fourth shiur together in the laws of Kashrut. And I have done my best to Avi, I'm not so tech savvy. Do you know if there's a way for me to see everybody? Is there a way to like not spotlight me so that I could just see everybody on my big screen in front of me? Um, let's see. Is, is that better now? Um, let's see. I'm sure there's a way for me to switch views. Hold on. You could probably still spotlight me. You could do that again. I just, I will put it on gallery view. But it's okay this way for me too. Is that okay? Let me check. Yeah, perfect. So that'll work. As you may have already noticed, that most of the topics that we have chosen for this series are rabbinic in nature. Uh, rabbinic in nature means inevitably that they're not as, I don't want to use the word crucial, but they're not as severe as other prohibitions. The reason why I focused on these is because some of the other things which we would focus on that are biblical by nature likely would be a little too earth shattering to cover in an introductory session on the laws of Kashrut. There are things that really need to be spoken about. But second, I think that the issues that people make in the world of Kashrut, the, the anthills that turn into mountains, are usually the rabbinic prohibitions that are so blown out of proportion that we need to kind of reel them back in and understand exactly what it is that we're doing or not doing. And so that brings me to today's show, which is about what we may know in modern Jewish lingo as Pat Israel or Pas Israel or however you may call this, uh, Pat Israel is the need, seemingly, to have bread that we eat or baked goods that we eat be baked by Jewish people in order for them to be fitting for our table. Now, usually the way that I teach is we start in sources and we build up an idea. I've noticed in the past that that is confusing for a few individuals. And so I want to just say a few things now so we don't need to repeat them later. 
Though this is about kashrut, it has actually nothing to do with kashrut. What I mean to tell you is, when we discuss whether or not we can buy bread or baked goods from a non-Jewish bakery, we are not talking about, are the ingredients kasher, how do we figure out the flour is yashan, all of those things are issues that need to be dealt with. Now, when we talk about Pat Israel, if it's permissible or it's not permissible, it's assuming that all the ingredients are kasher. It's assuming that all of the ovens and machinery and utensils that are used are kasherim. It's assuming that the flour is yashan and permissible. It's assuming there's no lard in the bread and there's no whatever else you might be concerned about. All of those things are important, but they're not important to this sinif and shulchanahu. So we are talking now about ingredients-wise and utensil-wise, completely kashel bread. The only problem with it, seemingly, is that it has been baked by someone who's not Jewish. That's the focus of today's shiur, and that's exactly what we're going to be delving into today in source number one. Mishnah Avod This Mishnah tells us, these are things of the non-Jews that are prohibited. But they're not prohibited in such a way that we're unable to actually get any type of benefit from them. So, for example, a meat and milk mixture that is forbidden. Um, let's think of an example. Um, a cheeseburger that the cheese is actually grilled onto it. That's a biblical prohibition. Not only can I not eat it, I also can't sell it. I can't derive benefit from it. These things are things that are prohibited in this Mishnah, but they're not prohibited to derive benefit from. Chalav, shechalavo goy, milk that was milked by a non-Jew. Ve'en Yisrael ro'ehu. And a Jewish person is not able to see him milking the cow. This is known in modern lingo as chalav Yisrael, which is a misnomer in terms of words entirely. But we're going to have a dedicated class to this part of the Mishnah. Vehapat, bread. Vehashemen shenahem, and their oil. So these are things that we're not allowed to purchase from non-Jews, even though they are completely kasher. It's the milk, it's the bread, and it's the oil. Ribi uvedino, ribi udanasi in hezbedadin, kitiru vashemen. They took back, they retracted this rule concerning oil. And oil of non-Jews is permissible to purchase. Ushlakot and their cooked foods, ukvashim, and all kinds of pickle things, they put vinegar and, and wines into. The rest of the Mishnah is really not relevant for us right now. But these concepts that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, milk that was milked by a non-Jew, bread that was baked by a non-Jew, oil that is sold by a non-Jew, and cooked foods that were cooked by non-Jews. All of these are prohibited on a rabbinic level from the Mishnah. Now, one more clarification that I can make before we go forward. Just like last time, I asked you to keep in mind that there's a complete difference between tivinat kinim, immersing utensils in the mikveh, and hechshel kinim, and kashering utensils from non-kashel use. You must keep the two halachot of baked goods of non-Jews and cooked foods of non-Jews completely separate from each other. Though they are mentioned in the same place, they have completely different understandings in halakha. And I'll refer to them as pachagoyim, the bread baked by non-Jews, and bishulegoyim, the food that is cooked by non-Jews. God willing, next week's class is going to be all about food that was cooked by non-Jews. Today, I'm not talking about food. I'm only talking about bread and baked goods. What determines something, what, what makes something a baked good versus a cooked food? 
that'll be next week's class to differentiate between those two things. But you can imagine for right now, breads, baguettes, bagels, possibly pizza. That's not the cheese. Ignore it. So those pitas, I mean, uh, lafas, lavash, all of those things are breads that we're talking about here in this Mishnah. Why are these things prohibited? Is a fantastic question. The Tamu Bavli, Masechel Avodah Zarah, page 35b, writes, the Mishnah discusses this topic here, of Pancha Goyim. And it says, Amar Rebikana, Amar Rebiochanan, Pat Lohut Rabbe Bedin. Bread was not permitted in the Bedin. Who, which Bedin permitted something? The Bedin of Rebuda Nasi permitted oil. So here he's telling us, the Bedin did not permit the eating of non-Jewish bread. It seems from this, you're telling me the Bedin did not prohibit bread. It means that somebody permitted the bread, it just wasn't the Bedin. Yes. The Gemara says that when Abdimi came from Eretz Israel to Bavim, he told the following story. Once Rabbi Danasi went out into the field, and an Anju brought before him bread that was baked in a large baker's oven. Rabbi Danasi said, how beautiful is this bread? Why did the Chachamim say we shouldn't eat it? The Gemara says, what do you mean? Why did the Chachamim say we shouldn't eat it? The reason we shouldn't eat it, we shouldn't eat Because it can lead to marriage with non-Jews. So you're going to have to ignore all kinds of jokes you might know about mixed dancing and everything else. Right now, there's a prohibition here. The prohibition is, <clears throat> it is forbidden to eat bread that is baked by non-Jews. Mishum chatnut. Nothing to do with cheshut. Everything to do with the fact that breaking bread with somebody else brings us close to them. When we are close with people, we end up becoming friends. We end up becoming friends. We'll end up marrying each other. The prohibition of intermarriage is so severe, and clearly there was a problem of it, that our Chachamim prohibited certain things because they bring us to closer relations that are, that are more than just intellectual relations, emotional relationships with non-Jews. And in order to preserve our, uh, our people marrying only themselves, our Chachamim prohibited us from eating bread. The Gemara explains that Rabbi was not asking in general because why is bread not allowed. Rather, he was asking why here in the field? Here in the field, I'm not eating with this non-Jew. I've got nothing to do with him. It's on the, I'm working, I'm traveling, whatever it might be. Why here is it prohibited to eat the bread of a non-Jew? The Gemara notes something interesting. People, the nation, began thinking that when Rabbi Uda said, hey, uh, why did the Chachamim not let us eat this bread? They immediately assumed, that must mean that Rabbi Udanasi said, we're allowed to eat the bread. And Rabbi Udanasi did not permit eating the bread. And that's why our rabbis tell us the Bedin did not permit eating bread. But the people understood Rabbi Udanasi's question as if saying, hey, bread should be allowed to be consumed in the field. Rabbi Yosef, there's another version of the story. This wasn't the story. One time, Rabbi Udanasi was traveling, and he found that the students in the Ben Midrash didn't have enough bread. Rabbi says, Is there no one here who can bake bread? They thought that he was asking, Are there no non Jewish bakers here? But he was really saying, Aren't there any Jewish bakers here? The Gemara continues that because of this, the people understood. You look on the top of page two on the top right. 
the people understood that, hey, maybe we would ever see saying that bread baked by a non-Jewish baker must be kasher. And that's not the case. And the Gemara then brings a third and final story. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. Evo, Evo. Have a monkey, he would bite and eat bread. He would go to the corners of the fields and he would eat bread over there. Rava says, Don't speak with Evo as he eats the bread of non-Jews and you shouldn't speak with a person who violates rabbinic prohibitions like that. And so here the Gemara concludes that in all of these scenarios, there were people who acted permissively regarding non-Jewish bread, but that the Chachamim were not the ones who permitted this, rather they were either individuals like Evo or the nation themselves, the people, they understood the bread to be permitted. And that's why Rabbi Salah said that Bedin, you should be very clear, even though people act permissively regarding bread baked by non-Jews, the Bedin is not the one who permitted this. In source number three, the Gemara continues to discuss this matter. Let's read it in English. The Gemara says, Bale says that Avimi of Notas says in the name of Rav, the prohibitions with regards to non-Jewish bread and their oil, their wine, and their daughters are all from the 18 matters issued in a single day in the time of the students of Shammai and Hilev. If you look in source 4, the Mishnah in Masechet Shabbat, chapter 1, Mishnah 4, says, there was a situation here in Masech Shabbat. I recently spoke about this in one of my Agadita classes, uh, my Rambam classes. Here, there were certain things that were prohibited that were done in a certain type of forum in the attic of Chananiah uh, Ben and these things, like not eating non-Jewish bread or not eating their oil, are of those things. So the Gemara asks, with regard to their daughters, what is the decree? Ibn Nachman Ba'itzchak says that there seems to be an issue with the non-Jewish woman being, I don't want to use the word into it, uh, if I they were nidot. And even from a very young age, Chachamim were concerned about this. The Gemara quickly dismisses that opinion and presents another opinion. You look on the top left of page two. All of these decrees were there because Jews might come to participate in idol worship if they're eating non-Jewish bread, for example. And so when Ravachah Barada came from Eretz Israel to Bavim, he said, Rabbi Tzchak said, they decreed a prohibition upon their bread due to their oil. The Gemara says, in what way is the prohibition with regard to oil stronger than the prohibition with regard to bread? That is, why does the primary concern relate to the oil of non-Jews rather than their bread? And the Gemara says, now a different interpretation in the last part of Source 3. They decreed on the bread and the oil because of their wine. And they made a decree on their wine because of their daughters. And on their daughters, they made a prohibition because of something else. And something else, they made on something else. This is a long decree. You want to look at the Gemara here yourself to understand what are all these something else you are welcome to. But again, we see that there's a reason why we are not allowed to eat non-Jewish bread and it has nothing to do with kashrut. I'm going to skip source five. It discusses those things. They're very similar to what we just did right now that are prohibited, uh, that were prohibited in that attic of the uh, Chachamim. And you find yourself in source six. In source six, we see Amar Ravina. Ravina says, Hilchada, the halacha is, Harista de Shadar Goi Vafa Israel, bread 
Veshagal Goy, Vafai Israel, that a non-Jew needed and sent to a Jewish person, or Shagal Israel, Vafai Goy, or bread that was sent by a Jew, was baked by a non-Jew, or Shagal Goy, Vafai Vetuchavim, or it was sent by a non-Jew, was baked by a non-Jew, Vafai Israel, and a Jew came, Vachita Vachitwe, and he stoked the coals under the bread. Shapir Dami. That is permissible because the Jewish person, though minimally involved in the baking process, has now done something to improve the baking of this bread, and therefore that bread is considered baked by a Jewish person. So you have here a number of different scenarios which bread might be kasher. It's either that the Jew baked the bread that the non-Jew made, it's that the non-Jew baked the bread the Jew made, and the Jewish person came to light, uh, to stoke the coals under the fire. The Gemara now tells us a story. And source seven. The Gemara relates a relevant incident. Rabbi Yudah Nesiyah. Rabbi Yudah is the grandson of Rabbi Yudah Nasi. So this is the author of the Mishnah. Now this is the grandson. He was traveling, leaning upon the shoulder of Rabbi Simlai. If he was leaning, he was literally traveling on his shoulders. But I didn't write the English translation. Who was Rabbi Simlai? He was his gabai, his shamash, his attendant. You were not in the study hall last night when we permitted the oil of Goyim. Rabbi Simai said to him, In our days, you will ultimately allow us to eat bread that was baked by non-Jews. Amar Lohi tells him, If I permit bread baked by non-Jews, I'm afraid to do that because all of my colleagues will call my Bedin a very permissive Bedin. So this persecution, by the way, of Chachamim for ruling leniently in halachic matters, and then calling them, oh, that rabbi is too permissive. It's not a new problem. It's a very old problem. And I was like, done? See, I was worried about it. The Tanan, we learned, Rabbi Yosef ben Yezer, said a number of things that were permissible. And the rabbis nicknamed him Yosef, the permissive one. He's always allowing everybody to do things okay. Uh, somebody once said, this rabbi is called Rav Matir Asurim. He is the rabbi who permits everything that is prohibited. This mockery, though, was something that Rabbi Yosef ben Yezra uh, felt, and Rabbi Yudanasiya was afraid of experiencing. Amar on page 4, Amar Leh he permitted three things. That's why they called him a permissive bedin. Umar Shalachadan, you rabbi, you only permit one thing, the oil. He says, I have a problem because I have already given two prior permissive rulings, and this number three will cause me to be considered a permissive chacham. And because of that, it seems that he didn't actually permit the bread. But you find here that Rabbi Udanisya was seemingly of the opinion, he was leaning towards the fact that bread baked by Goim, there was room to permit it, and the only thing that held him back from permitting it was the fact that people would speak about him in a poor fashion. Naran, in Source 8, mentions something very interesting. And there's a question here, who this personality is in the story. And Naran suggests that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was the one who initially wanted to permit bread, just like he permitted oil. But he similarly tried to teach it, and the people did not accept it from the author of the Mishnah. So the grandson came around and he wanted to permit it himself and the rabbis accepted from him. Where do we find that Chachamim are permissive regarding non-Jewish bread? It seems to not be found in our Babylonian Talmud. 
we find a reference to permitting non-Jewish bread in the Jerusalem Talmud, in the Yerushalmi Talmud. If you look in source 9, Pitan, the Gemara, the second chapter, the eighth halakha, the Gemara here discusses whether non-Jewish bread is permitted or not. Rabbi Yaakov bar in source 9, Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Achad, the name of Rabbi Yonatan, says, Pan, bread, mehalachot shel imum hi. There are the laws of imum. What is imum? So there are commentaries on the page, but there's an English version of this word. And if you look in source 10 for just a moment, there was a rabbi, Marcus Jastrow. Have you heard of Rabbi Marcus Jastrow? I found a biography of him not so long ago. A very interesting personality to read about. What I will tell you is we're talking about permissive rabbis. Uh, it's amazing to me how his book and his name has become a household name in almost every yeshiva, at least in the English-speaking world. I can tell you his books are found everywhere. There's not a Ben Midrash that I studied in that was an English-speaking Ben Midrash that didn't have these books. Yet if you were to research a little bit about him and his life and his rabbinic career, uh, you might wonder, just like I, how he made it into the rabbinic world. He was one of the early rabbis of the reform movement here in the United States. Uh, you can go research him on your own. He writes here, Imum, or Imam in a verb fashion. What is it? Obscuring or suppressing the law. A regular measure passed in an emergency. It's a regulation that's passed in an emergency contrary to the real law. As there's a question in the Gemara, how dare you pass a prohibitory measure contrary to Halakha? This is exact. This law is a law of imum. There's a lot of, what do they translate here in English? They have a great word here. They translate it as obfuscation. I've never used that word in my entire life, but it's there on the page. This is an unclear word, uh, area of Halakha. You skip towards the end. I bolded the top of page four on the left. In a place where you can buy Jewish bread, the law is that you cannot buy non-Jewish bread. And they obfuscated about this law. And now they've allowed the bread of non-Jews. For which reason? Unlike other things, cheese, uh, uh, foods, bread is a staple of life. A person needs the bread to survive. You travel, you go somewhere, the very bare necessities you need, water and bread. That's what our forefather asked for. And then because bread is such a crucial part of, it's a staple of human life, Chachamim permitted the consumption of non-Jewish bread. It can be... It can, here it says, which is interesting, cool. it, says, it can be that you're allowed to buy non-Jewish bread, but the only place you can buy non-Jewish bread from is a non-Jewish bakery, but not from a regular non-Jewish person at their home. The law of Din came, but this is not the way that we, do, we act. So really in Tamud Yerushalmi, you find that Chachamim, or this is a certain group of Chachamim, permitted the consumption of non-Jewish bread that was baked in a commercial setting. Let's call that from now on Pat Parter, or Pat Nachtom, the bread that was baked in a commercial setting, and even though that's against the halakha, but because people's lives are dependent on bread, this is something that was permitted. There's some fascinating commentaries here on page uh, 5, 11, 12, and I'm going to skip them for now. Let's look at, let's look at the Rambam, on the bottom of page 5, source 13. 
Unfortunately, I don't have an edition of Rav Kapach's translation of the commentary and the Mishnah available to share. And I didn't bring my edition here. And so I have it, but I don't have it to share. So I'm going to use whatever translation was available to me in Sepharia, and I'm aware of the, the flaws that are inherent in that translation. These are the things of the non-Jews that we're not allowed to eat. This is the first Mishnah that we quoted. It's verse 1. Says the Ambam, most of these things, like bread, and the cooked foods, and everything included in that category, all of them were prohibited, so we stay away from them. We should not get mixed in with them. Get mixed in with what? With bread? Not to get mixed in with the non-Jews. So we don't end up sending our hand and taking that which we're not allowed. And that's what our rabbis mean when they say that these things are prohibited because it will lead to intermarriage. And these are in those 18 things that were decided in the Mishnah and Shabbat. That which you see. That we forbid their cooked foods, meaning kosher food. It's a kosher pot. The only flaw here is that a non-Jewish person cooked it. It's not because they cooked them in their pots and pans or some kind of kashrut issue here. These are the things that have nothing to do with kashrut status. And nothing else that might be problematic in that regard. The Rambam reiterates here, the prohibition of eating non-Jewish cooked foods has nothing to do with the kashrut status of the food. It's obvious that food is not kashrut, you can't eat it. Meaning, if a non-Jew roasts a pork chop for you, you can't eat it because it's a pork chop. There's no reason for a rabbinic prohibition telling you not to eat it. Rather, there's something else, and that something else is our chachamim instituted a law that says, stay away from non-Jewish bread, non-Jewish foods, whatever it might be, so that we don't come to marry them. And let's get to the middle of the paragraph. I put another bold section. Upitam, their bread. It seems from our Babylonian Talmud. Meaning not the Jerusalem Talmud, from the Babylonian Talmud. Shu asu, let us prohibit it. Aval pat ha-shuk, shemokhrin ha-nachtomin, isurom me'at, v'karob l'heter mipad ba'ne bakim. Says the Rambam, but the bread that is baked, by non-Jewish bakers in a commercial setting, not in a residential setting. It almost seems that it's mutah. I mean, it's isura ma'at. It's a very weak prohibition, and it's very close to being permissible. Why? Tell me the logic. What's the difference between residential bread and commercial bread? Pat balabai and pat nachtom or pat You don't make a relationship with the person in a commercial setting, whereas in a residential, yeah. you will. Very good. It's the difference between I move into a house and my next door neighbor bakes me brownies and brings them over. But in California, you have to be careful for the brownies your next door neighbor brings you. But here, you just, they bring you uh, brownies. You're not allowed to eat those things. Why? Because my neighbor is trying to make a friendship with me. That's exactly what Chachamim are prohibiting. When I go to a bakery and there's hundreds of people in line over there and there's, there's a whole factory back there pumping out bread, that bread that I buy doesn't bring me any closer to the baker, to the person who's selling it. It's just a commercial setting. It's a financial transaction. As such, it's almost permissible to eat this bread. 
And those who are traveling, says the Ramban, and in any need, situation, any situation where there rises a need, it is permissible, in my opinion. And you have to fall back on what is the custom of the country in which you live. Do the Chachamim permit the eating of non-Jewish bread? Or do they not? Remember this concept here, Minhad, because really, I want to hold it away from you all the way until the end of the class. I don't want to talk about Minhagim until the end. Uh, the Minhagim are fascinating, but if we study the Minhagim first, there'll be no reason for this class. So let's not deal with the Minhagim, and let's first look at the Halakot as they are presented to us. There's a few tangents that we might take right here for just a moment. The Ramban. The Ramban mentions... But if there's a decree that it didn't spread like wildfire throughout the Jewish community, not the whole Jewish community accepted it, that even a small betadin is able to, meaning not the original betadin, we have a famous rule. The rule is that if a betadin rules on something, the only way you can overrule that betadin is if the betadin is equal or greater in number and stature. A smaller betadin, though, can overrule a decree made by a previous rabbinic court as long as that decree wasn't taken on by the whole Jewish community. And even in a situation, says the Ramban, where this decree was not actually explicitly permitted by a betadin, would have no way to compel the nation to keep a gezerah then not the whole Jewish community accepted. Uh, these words are similar, though not identical, to the words of the Rambam in the introduction to the Mishra Torah regarding the authority of rabbis to make decrees after the final Supreme Court of the Jewish people. They maybe have authority over their own people, but not over the entire Jewish community, and you're not able to compel people. Here the Rambam is something interesting. A smaller betadin in stature or number can overrule a previous betadin's gezerah, assuming that it wasn't accepted by the people, and even if a betadin wasn't the one who did that, even if it wasn't the betadin who overruled this, it just happened. People started being permissive in this matter. And like we see in the Gemara, the people misheard of Yudhamasi, they misunderstood him, and they were permissible. We don't force them to follow in these ways. And I saw furthermore that someone wrote, that because the only prohibition of eating non-Jewish bread is because we might come to marry their daughters. Uh, nowadays, it's permissible. What's the logic? I don't want to translate that sentence. But let's just say that non-Jewish people really wanted to marry Jewish people. But nowadays, with the nations around us, and it doesn't apply anymore nowadays, but in the Ramban's days, that the nations around us have religious reasons why they're not allowed to marry us that there's no reason to say we'll come to marry them because the Muslims don't marry us. The Christians won't marry us. And because of that, we don't have to have an extra safeguard to keep us away from marrying them. Says the Rambam, And this is a very great error. And whoever uttered this ruling, it's not a good thing to rely on their halakhic rulings. It's incorrect to understand it. Rather, that you cannot just get rid of things that previous Batei they ruled. 
as long as, even if the reason is no longer relevant, the previous ruling of the Bitin stands. Tosafot, in source 15, and this is Tosafot on the Gemara and the Vodazara, page 35b. He writes, from that which the Gemara says, that you see that even though Pat was not permitted in the Betadin, there was there were those who treated this permissively. Alma, you see, that the prohibition of bread, though it may have been decreed by our rabbis, never took on in the Jewish people. And from that fact, we rely on now to eat bread baked by non-Jews. Because the bread, that the provision on bread, did not cross the entire Jewish people, was not accepted by the entire Jewish people. So it's a vote here. Does he seem to be making a difference between bread baked commercially and bread baked residentially? No, he's not. You have to remember that fact because it's going to play a role in deciding what the Ashkenazi custom is as opposed to the Sephardic custom is regarding bread baked by non-Jews. Tosafot uh, uh, brings a number of other places where he says, for other places in the Gemara, for example, there's a rabbinic prohibition of decreeing a decree on the Jewish people, which they're not able to stand up to. So yeah, some people can keep it, but most people can give up non-Jewish bread. And non-Jewish bread, therefore, would fall into the category of decrees that were already uh, uh, void when they were instituted. Or where else, he quotes the Gemani Yerushalmi, that the bread, the Chachamim got up and they ultimately permitted this bread. It's from this understanding of the Tosafot that bread of Goim is completely permissible and that is the custom that he observed in Ashkenaz. Tosafot Rid writes something similar. Haraperet in Source 17 brings you a number of different uh, uh, sources that of the Rishonim, the Rit, the Ran. The Ran writes, let's look at the second paragraph in Source 17. The Ran says, that this decree against non-Jewish bread did not take on, the Jewish people did not take on this, this practice. This is a decree that most of the community was not able to uphold. Because of this, any Bedin who decides is able to uh, permit this. So the Fichat and the Fork, the Ramban, the Ramban writes, even nowadays, that if the rabbis of the Jewish people were to permit non-Jewish bread, mutar, it's permissible. Even though they are smaller in stature and number than the Chachamim of Shammai in Hillel, that Rabbi Udanasi was smaller than them, and he didn't care to permit it, and therefore non-Jewish bread is permitted. The Rambam, which we're going to see soon, we'll talk about him in just a few moments. Uh, the Rambam, let's get to the Rambam in a few minutes. You know, let's get to the Rambam right now. I like the Rambam. Let's go to source uh, page eight. Page eight, I've quoted to you all of the halakhot that Rambam talks about non-Jewish bread, and really I overdid it because because only two of these halakhot have to do with bread. But it's in the context of understanding what exactly the Rambam wants from us. So until now, let me summarize. There is a prohibition from the times of the Mishnah. As you know, there are those who even argue that this prohibition is found earlier. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is careful when he's by the king to eat even the patban. Some understand this to mean that he was careful even with the bread that was baked by non-Jews 
and and it was a separate thing from Kashrut. It was he was concerned about bread baked by non-Jews. But I would be very wary to consider this one a biblical prohibition because it's from Daniel. Uh, so I'm not going there. I didn't bring it in my source sheet. But for right now, let's look on page eight. The Rabbam writes the following in the 17th chapter of the laws of forbidden foods. There are there other things. The word sham, from my understanding, I don't speak Arabic, is a, it's a use of terms borrowed from Arabic. And it's not actually referring to there's a place somewhere. Rather, it's, a, it's an expression that when translated, if I can give you an example, I once read from an Ashkenazi rabbi in America, he wrote a book on halakha, in Hebrew. And he was writing that when you go to someone's house on Shabbat, and he wrote there, when you go to someone's house, al-Shabbat, literally on top of Shabbat, uh, which is a grammatical error. I'm not accusing the Rambam of a grammatical error, but sometimes you find that a person's language they speak day to day also affects the way that they speak in Hebrew and write in Hebrew, and that's normal. So this is possibly uh, the Rambam's Arabic influence in his Hebrew. There are other things. There are rabbis prohibited. Even if there is no biblical source for these prohibitions, our rabbis decreed in order to distance us from the non-Jews. The Rambam is saying exactly what he said in his commentary on the Mishnah. So the Jewish people will not come to intermingle with them. And ultimately, it will protect the Jews from marrying out of the Jewish faith. These are the things that our rabbis prohibited. It is forbidden to drink with non-Jews. What does it mean, it is forbidden to drink from non-Jews? Drink what? Water? Alcohol. Drink. It is forbidden to drink alcohol with non-Jews. Now, I know that I may now have ruined many people's plans for tonight, and I don't intend to do that for you, uh, but I'm just reading to you exactly what the Rambam writes here. It is forbidden to drink with them. Even in a place where we don't have to be afraid of of wine that is forbidden to us. It is forbidden to eat their bread that they bake or the foods they cooked. And even in places where we're not worried about kashrut. Everything is kasher. The pots are kasher. The, the ingredients are kasher. There are things that are prohibited to do. Drinking alcohol, eating their bread, and eating their cooked foods. Ketan, so for example, you, know, you could read Halakha Yud on your own. The Ramam talks about situations where it is prohibited or permitted to drink alcoholic beverages that were made by non-Jews, as well as in source Yud Aleph. Right now, let's get to bread. Yud Bet. Even though the bread of non-Jews is prohibited, there are places which are lenient in this matter. They're permissive in this matter. And they buy bread that was baked commercially by non-Jews. In places where there are no Jewish bakers. In the field, meaning out of the city, out of their homes. Because those are pressing times. But the bread that is baked in someone else's house, residential bread. There is no one who permits this bread. So let's put this on the side right now. There is no one, meaning no one in our Sephardic solar system, who permits bread to be baked by a non-Jewish person at home. 
שיקר גזרה, because the main reason behind this provision, משום חתנות, is because of marriage. ואם יאכל פת בעלי בתים, יבוא לסעוד אותן. And it's inevitable that if you come to eat bread baked by your non-Jewish friends, that you will come to eat in their home, and that would then lead to the whole problem. In Halakha Yudgimim, הדליקה גוי תתנור ועשה בו ישראל. If a non-Jew turned on the oven, and a Jew baked in the oven, remember that you must separate all of these halakhot from cooking. We're now only talking about baking, not cooking. הדליקה גוי תתנור, a non-Jew turned on the oven, ועשה בו ישראל, and a Jewish person baked bread in that oven. או שהדליק ישראל ועשה גוי, or a Jew turned on the oven, and a non-Jew baked it. This is the teaching of Ravina. Before I said sent, um, the fire. Or the non-Jew lit the fire and baked. And the Jew came and soaked the coals a little bit. And what I was just telling you is a correction from what I said earlier. On source 6, I said the word sent instead of lit. Mechila was a mistake in my head. The Rambam is now saying again in Hebrew. Now that he has been involved in the baking of the bread, the non-Jewish bread is now permitted. And even if the Jew only threw a little piece of wood, a twig, into the fire, And then all of the bread inside of it is permitted. The only reason a Jewish person has to be involved in the baking process in the first place is just that we have a hekel, that we recognize that their bread is technically prohibited for us. So let me summarize now what the Rambam says. The Rambam says bread baked by non-Jews is prohibited, whether residential bread or commercial bread. But there are places where this did not seem to, the, the rabbis were permissive in this matter, and because of that, in those places, Jews buy commercial bread, but not residential bread. There is nowhere that permits residential bread. Finally, the 13th section here is that according to the one that says that it's prohibited, where bread of non-Jews is prohibited, it is permitted in one of the following three ways. Either the Jew turns on the fire and the non-Jew bakes it, or the non-Jew turns on the fire and the, maybe, and the Jew bakes it. I mean, one of those scenarios, or, or a non-Jew turns on the fire, a non-Jew bakes it, but a Jewish person is involved even minimally, throwing a, a, a that's not just stoking the cold, but even throwing a wood pick into the oven is enough to make all of that bread kasher, according to everybody. And here ends the Rambam's loss of Pachel Goyim. So exactly two and a half halakot. If you turn with me to page nine, you'll find that as generations move forward, things seem to get more complicated. And Maran Shukhan Aruch Siman Kufiud Bet, Maran already has 16 chapters, uh, meaning Simanit, uh, one Siman, but 16 Sifim, 16 sub chapters, all on the topic of whether bread of Jews or non Jews, how it's prohibited, is it prohibited, when is it prohibited, and that, Bilal Hashem, is going to be the focus of the next part of the Shiul. So, any questions until now about anything we learned until now? If I if didn't answer it yet, I will let you know that I'm going to answer it. Okay, moving forward. On page 9, when I added here the notes, Alperz did not write notes on this uh, siman, but I have his notes that he wrote in general on Bishul Egoim, 
and I embellish them onto the Shulchan Aruch here so we can have some point of reference while we're learning. Uh, that's why they're more sparse than some of the other uh, commentaries which study the Vizna. Maran writes Shulchan Aruch, Asru chachamim lechol pat shel amamei ovdei chachamim. Our rabbis prohibit us from eating bread of non-Jews. Mishum chatnut, because we might come to marry them. V'afilu b'makom delecha mishum chatnut asur. The Ramah quotes the Rashba, and he says that even in a place where there is no fear that we might come to marry them, even then it's prohibited. What is the Ramah coming to include in this case? It's not about commercial bakeries or non-commercial bakeries. Tell me a person who there's no way in the world we can marry their daughters. Please, b'chavot. Is it referring to the situation that they said mentioned earlier about that non-Jews is against their religion to marry Jews? Okay, very good. So I think the Taz or the Shach, one of them brings a source. Imagine there's a royal family. The royal family is not allowed to marry a peasant like you, especially you're Jewish. It's even worse than regular peasant. So even then, where they're not allowed to marry us, it still wouldn't help. We wouldn't be allowed to eat their bread. There's another scenario. Who else? do we not have to be concerned that we might come to marry their daughters? Anybody in the church that doesn't get married necessarily? Very good. The Taz and the Shach both bring this. A priest, a priest who's not allowed to get married inevitably has no children. By the way, that assumption, you can make it. I didn't make it. Uh, so inevitably, assuming the priest doesn't have children, so maybe you could be able to eat the bread of a Catholic priest. No, also then, our rabbis did not differentiate between whether somebody can have children, doesn't have children, will marry you. Rather, this prohibition is a blanket prohibition against non-Jewish bread. That's what the Ramah is coming to add. I don't think that Maran is uh, arguing with that. It's simply the Ramah is adding in the detail here. <laughs> and the only breads that are prohibited are breads that are baked out of the five grains. But bread that's made from rice or, uh, or other beans, whatever else it might be, is not, those things are not included in the prohibition of bread, which we're not allowed to eat. Now, they could be prohibited under the prohibition of food that was cooked by non-Jews. But for right now, in dealing with the world of bread, we're only talking about bread that are made from the five grains. So breads whose blessings would be hamotzi, or baked goods whose blessings would be mizonot. Yes. The Ramah writes, those types of foods are not prohibited because of assuming they don't enter a king's table like I said we're going to discuss this already uh, next week let's write in source one here the bread of the priests they don't have children it's still prohibited what about Pat Yehudi What about a Jewish person who converts out of our faith? What if a Jewish person becomes a Catholic priest? Can we eat his bread? Because there is no prohibition of marrying his children. If his daughter is a Kashera Jew, she's Kashera, and I'm a Kashera Jew, I can marry his daughter. The father-in-law doesn't make the daughter not Jewish. Because of that, in this situation, it doesn't apply. You should know, unfortunately, this is not the prevalent practice. At least not among... I'm, I'm holding my tongue here. I will tell you that when I was growing up, I'll tell you a story and you figure out yourself. I was growing up, I went to a Jewish day school, and in the Jewish day school, we had these Israeli Hebrew teachers. 
and not all of them were, all of them were respectful of Jewish tradition, of course, they're Israelis, uh, and they were teaching in the Jewish school. But not all of them were observant of Shabbat the way perhaps the spiritual management of the school would like for them to observe Shabbat. And as such, when they would bake cookies, like for Purim, they made the Haman's ears, whenever they want to, the, the cookies they eat, or uh, on, um, what was it? It was uh, Hanukkah, they wanted to make donuts, whatever it might be. All of those things, every time they wanted to bake with us, they had to go find a, a person who was observant of halakha, and they had to turn on the oven for them, because God forbid, a person who was not observant of halakha like them was not allowed to turn on the oven. And Lama said, this is not something that anybody has to be concerned about, because the logic is, those people are kashel Jews, we can marry them, we can marry their children, the rabbinic prohibition, Mishum Khatnut, should not apply there. But, yes, in the Komot, in the Kilim there are places which are lenient in this manner. And they take bread from a non-Jewish baker. In a place where there is no Jewish baker, because there's a pressing need there. The Rama adds, some say, even in a place where there is Jewish bread, shari, it's permissible. Maran writes, but bread baked residentially, there is no one who permits it. Because the main prohibition is, this is just copy and paste from the Rambam, because the prohibition is to marry them, and if you eat their bread, you'll come to eat in their homes. The Ramah goes, what about a, a non-Jewish residential person who bakes bread in their home to sell commercially? And those are interesting details. So right now, we're dealing with a situation that Maran quotes Ha'alakha saying it's prohibited. But then he brings him Minhad. There are those that are lenient about it. And this usually would fall into the rules of there's a law. Maran says something in Bistam. And then he says, Yesh Amrim. The Yesh Amrim is rejected for the Stam. We would follow. There's a prohibition here. But being that Malad spent so much time here, on all of these yesh mishomer, yesh omrim, yesh mishomer, I have to tell you that I can't go further without saying that the custom in all of the Jewish communities, with the exception of one, is that bread baked by non-Jews in a commercial setting is mutar. I have to jump to the end. I will show you some examples of that later. But there's no way to understand why Malad would write anything further if this was all prohibited. If it's all prohibited, then what does it matter? It's a bad minhag. Malad won't even quote it. But this is something, clearly, like the Rambam, he understands, it's, it's something that is not even, it's almost permitted. It's, it's very, really not prohibited. It's almost, the Rambam says, Karob It's a very small isul. And because of that, this didn't spread across the whole Jewish community, and there's a reason to be lenient in this matter. If you look here, Pad Balabai, in the bottom of page 9, in source 2, in the bottom right column, Kadva Rambam Umaran, the Rambam Umaran both write this, and there is a decree against coming to intermarriage. According to this opinion of the even if there is no uh, Jewish bread available, according to the basic law, it doesn't make a difference if there's Jewish bread available, Jewish bread not available, you're not allowed to buy bread baked by non-Jews. In the custom of the Ramah, the opinion of and the custom of Ashkenaz is exactly what, what Malan writes in the eighth section of these halakot. There is one who says, Malan. If you want to see this inside, you can see in here. On page 11, Chet. Yesh Mishomer. 
in a place where there is no Jewish baker at all, mutar. Even a non-Jewish baker. There is no commercial bakery. Mutar, it's formidable. Even residential bread. Says the Ramah, You don't have to wait for kasher bread. And this is the Ashkenazi custom. So what is the Ashkenazi custom regarding bread? Is it in a place where there's no commercial bakery? You don't have to bake your own bread. You can even go buy residential bread from your next door neighbor. You can get bread from anybody. This entire gazera disappears. Maran and the Rambam would not agree. In that situation, you can buy bread in a commercial setting, but not bread ever in a residential setting. Let's look at how it Yes, Mishomer, there's one who says, that if a baker invites you to come eat bread with him, then that bread is no longer commercial bread, rather, it's residential bread. It's in a place where there is no Jewish baker. If there is no Jewish baker in town. And you now go to the non-Jewish bakery to buy bread. And all of a sudden, a Jewish baker shows up. He has a cart in the middle of the street in the farmer's market. He's selling his bread. You have to wait until the Jewish person finishes selling his bread. That bread that you bought at the non-Jewish bakery in the morning, the whole time the Jewish person is selling bread, that bread stopped being kasher. And magically, once the Jewish person is done, Selling their bread, then this bread in front of you becomes kasher. Yes, Omrim, there are some who say, that someone who has bread in their hand, or there's a Jewish baker, and the non Jewish baker bakes nicer bread than the Jewish baker does. Or the non Jewish baker bakes a type of bread that Jewish people don't make, meaning, Let's imagine two scenarios. The Jewish people sell terrible, stale bread, or they don't know how to bake bread well. And the non-Jewish baker, they're artisan bread makers, their bread is delicious. Or another scenario, the Jews bake nice bread, but they don't sell whole wheat bread. They only sell white flour. But this artisan baker, he sells whole wheat bread. In any of these scenarios, you can buy this bread from the non-Jewish baker, either that it's better or it's a different variety. In any place where the custom is to permit commercial bread of non-Jews. Because you so much like, you like that bread the non-Jew has so much better than the Jewish bread, it's now considered a shatat chak for you. It's considered a pressing situation for you. You don't want to eat this terrible Jewish baked bread that they sell in the Jewish grocery store. You only like that special artisan bread that the non-Jews sell. So for you, Eating kasher bread from a kasher bakery is considered a, a situation of great suffering. And because of that, there is one who says that it is permissible for you to go to the non-Jewish bakery, assuming, assuming that the minhag where you live is that you can buy commercial non-Jewish bread. And again, this doesn't apply to the Ramah, because the Ramah says that it doesn't make a difference. In any case, uh, if you look here in, in the source on page 3 in the Sikulim of Rama says, 
there are those who write that even if there's Jewish bread, you can always buy non-Jewish bread. That's what the Mordechai writes. The Bach writes, The Bach says the custom in all of the Ashkenazi countries is that Ashkenazi Jews buy bread from non-Jews every day, all the time, and that's the custom that is prevalent all over Ashkenaz. The Shach agrees, and that's the halakha that Ashkenazim always had. This whole turn back to Pat Israel uh, is a reinvention of Ashkenazi practice, like many other things. In any place where there is a, it has been permissible to, the custom is to eat bread of a commercial baker, even if it's kneaded with eggs, even if there are eggs that are smeared on top of it, it's permitted. So maybe you could be concerned with the blood spots that we discussed in the first class. Maybe you're concerned with the fact that the eggs are not, you're not allowed to eat eggs that are cooked by non-Jews. But here it's mixed into the bread. All of these situations would be permissible. Aval in Penada. In Penada is a food that is still eaten in the Sephardic community. Shafa'a goi, the non-Jew made. You're not allowed to eat that bread. We're going to discuss all of this already next week. It's not, it has to do with Bishu and everything else that happens like that. The Ramah writes, this is a fascinating Ramah. Uh, anytime someone tells you that following Shukhan Aruch is too lenient, just read to them the Ramah. The Ramah says, there are some who are prohibited. They prohibit any bread that has eggs smeared on the top of it. Because you can see them. They're no longer nullified in the dough of the bread. And they're prohibited because it's considered food that is cooked by a non-Jew. And that is the Ashkenazi custom. These are types of cookies and cakes. Hem bichlal pat. They are considered bread, meaning that they are permissible to eat. And any place where non-Jewish bread is permitted, so too all the other baked goods are permitted as well. They don't fall into the category of food, which we are not allowed to eat when made, when made by goyim. There's another type of cookie called kichluch. They bake them on iron uh, rods or, or grates. And they smear forbidden fats or, or pig fat on top of those iron bars. You should be prohibitive. You shouldn't eat them. And that is the minhad. Which tells you, according to the Rama, what is the law? The law is that that fat smeared rod is fine. But the Ashkenazi custom is to refrain from eating them. Just keep that one in your back pocket anytime somebody tells you that the machines that you have all have pig fat all over them and everything else. And the Rama already discusses it here. On the top of page 11, Pat Balabait Asuralaunan. Residential bread is forbidden always. Afilu Even if a baker buys these goods and sells them commercially, this happens very often. There's an Arab market that I go to. Uh, and there are sometimes that they sell, all, you know, it's Ramadan, all kinds of special foods they sell there. And sometimes they go there and you have to ask. The manager already, he knows me. Unfortunately, that's so closed, but the manager, he knew me. And I would ask, these things, they bake them here? Or did that old lady make them in her house and then bring them here? Because this is relevant to this halakhan here. If the old lady baked them in her home, it's residential bread, even though they're selling it 
commercially. וכן אפילו שלחה אותו ישראל לאחר, אסמאל העולם. And even if you buy them and send them to another Jew, so it's that many times removed, it's still prohibitive. ושל פלטר, and baked things of a, a, a commercial bakery, מותרת לעולם are always permitted. אפילו כנאה בעל הבית ממנו. Even if a, a residential person, so let's say your next door neighbor, buys bread from the bakery. So that bread is kasher. But now they bring it home, this bread still stays kasher. שלא הלכו באיסור זה אחר מי שעבד בידו עכשיו, אלא אחר מי שהיה לו בשעת אפייה. We don't concern ourselves with who's holding the bread now. Rather, the baked goods are always, their kashrut status is always determined based on who baked them, not on who's owning them right now. And therefore, commercial bread that ended up in residential hands, it is permissible for your next door neighbor to make you a sandwich with commercial bread. But it is forbidden for the store to make you a sandwich with residential bread that they purchased and sell for you over there. We already read Halakha Chet together. Hidlik Hagoya Tanu. If the non-Jew turns on the oven, Ve'afabu Yisrael, and the Jewish person bakes in it, or the Jewish person turned on the oven, and the non-Jew baked it, or both steps were done by a non-Jew, and a Jewish person came and he shook up the fire a little bit. This is permitted. And even if he only threw a little stick into the oven, all of the bread in the oven is not permissible. The only reason we do these things is just to remember that their bread is prohibited to us. Many, many major organizations, I will not mention names, they rely on this in extreme fashions. So what they do is they have uh, a kitchen somewhere in a different country and they're baking bread. And what do they do? They turn on the oven via remote control. Wonders of technology. We're all sitting together all over the world. Just like you can turn on your screen and it gets you, they can turn on the oven in another country. But there are some that are so, this is, they take this to such an extreme, they don't even turn on the oven. The non-Jews turn on the oven. Rather, what do they do? They have a special light bulb they install in the oven. It's an oven-safe light bulb. And they turn on the light bulb, let's say from New York. Right? Just enjoy it. Press the button. Boom. The light bulb turns on in, in China. What does the light bulb help? The light bulb adds even a minuscule amount of heat, just like throwing a wood pick into the oven. And because of that, they will now write on the label, this bread is patisayat. It always amazes me that somebody would eat that bread that is baked in another country by non-Jews with a Jewish person who turns on a light bulb, remote control, but they won't eat bread that is really, at the end of the day, mutar by the minhad, that was baked. Their bread is also baked by non-Jews. They just feel like it's not baked by non-Jews. Says Marad, the Ramah writes, vim nafach ba'esh, then what happens if you don't even stoke the coals? You just blow at them. You blow at the coals, that is also permissible. And the Prichadash agrees with that. I brought him on source uh, on page 10 on the top left of the page. The Prichadash writes that uh, they all agree. So that nobody disagrees here with the Ramah. Then blowing on the coals would also be okay. I'm skipping you. Non-Jewish bread that was baked without any kind of stoking the coals, no throwing wood in there. You're not allowed to sell it to a non-Jew. 
Because maybe he'll end up selling this bread to a Jewish person. Okay. Let's um, let's go to Prichadash. There's a Prichadash quoted in source four. Kadap Prichadash, Meshem Arikash, Hamoshlim, the government rulers, Shenotlim Becholiyom Pats and Meshantim or Ovetim Ma'isleni. Today, every day, they send bread to their employees, their doctors. They have Jewish doctors in the palace of the king. And they send bread from their kitchens. They all, everyone who works in the palace gets a loaf of bread today. That's considered commercial bread. And it's not considered bread that's residentially baked. Says the Bukhadash, he wrote very well. All of this is considered commercial bread. And therefore, it would be permissible in such a situation. So, a practical sign here would be you're working in a building and there's a cafeteria kitchen and they're baking bread over there for all the employees in the company. At the end of the day, that's also considered commercial bread. writes, If the Jewish, the non-Jewish person bakes the bread and the Jew is not involved at all, and even if the bread gets crusty in the oven, if the Jew comes and stokes the coals, even the bread is already baked, meaning it's already done. You could take it, take it out of the oven now. So long as the bread, so long as the bread still gets better while it's staying in the oven, it's okay if the Jew comes even in the last minute and stokes the coals, the bread is permissible. There is one who says that even if you take out the bread, I mentioned this in my first class, that if you take the bread that you bought in the bakery, it was done completely by goyim. Jews were not involved at all. And you bring it home. And you bring it home and put it back in your oven. If the bread gets better when you put it back in the oven, that bread is now permissible. Let me give you an example that happens every day. You buy bread. The bread was baked by non-Jews. The oven was lit by non-Jews. Jews were not involved in the process at all. If you take that bread home, you slice it up, and you put it in your toaster, now that bread becomes Pat Yisrael again. Because you were involved in the baking process. Yes, <laughs> Mishomer. Halachayu Gimel. Mishen, this is one of my favorite halachot You have to read this halacha because, 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 you'll see why. Mishen non ishal mipachu goyim. Let's say there's a person like me who is not particular to buy Jewish bread. I buy also non-Jewish bread. Shehesev etzel pad bahabay tanisal mipachu goyim. And I am hosted at a person's house who does not eat bread baked by non-Jews. So I permit, my host prohibits. And on the table, there are two loaves of bread. There's Jewish bread, and there's that artisan bread that's better than the Jewish bread that a non-Jew baked. So my host doesn't eat pachal goyim. I eat pachal goyim. On the table, there are two loaves, and the non-Jewish bread is better than the Jewish bread. Min the homeowner should say hamotzi on the nicer of the two breads, which is the non-Jewish bread. And he can eat non-Jewish bread for the whole entire meal. Meaning, not just for hamotzi, it's better to choose the nicer of the two breads, but for the rest of the meal, because I'm there, because the bread of the non-Jew is better, he's allowed to eat the non-Jewish bread for the entire meal. 
Can you imagine if that was kashrut policy everywhere? Let's look at this. It's not a first time I mentioned the halakha. Look, I brought you in bold. Source number five. It says, Magan, Pat goyim nekia. Nice, clean, non-Jewish bread. Ufat kibbal to Israel. And not so nice, Jewish bread. If you are not particular about eating Jewish bread, you can recite any one that, a blessing over either one that you want. Why should you not recite a blessing over the nicer bread? I mean, why can you choose also the bad Jewish bread? Because each one of these has a pro and each one has a con. The Jewish bread is nicer because it was baked by Jews. Its con is that it's not such nice bread. And the non-Jewish bread, its pro is that it's a nicer bread, but its con is that it's pachal you can choose at that point, says Malan, either one of the two breads because they are now equal in status. And if you're careful about eating non-Jewish bread, you should remove the non-Jewish bread from the table until after Hamutzi. You know why? Because really, according to Halakha, there might be a reason why you should eat, even though you don't, you should eat the non-Jewish bread. How does Malan treating this entire Halakha? It's not really a halakha. Very similar to what the Rabbah writes in Pirusha Mishnayot. And if the host is not careful with non-Jewish bread, then he chooses the whole meal only to eat the nicer non-Jewish bread. But the residents, the people in his house, ate from the Jewish bread. Both of the breads are on the table. Because you're the one doing hamotzi, even though your family prefers the Jewish bread that's not so nice, because you prefer the non-Jewish bread, you have to recite hamotzi on the non-Jewish bread. And if the host is careful not to eat bread baked by non-Jews, and a Jewish person who's not careful is sitting on the table. This is Malan's scenario from above. Because the mitzvah is on the whole owner, he has to eat from the non-Jewish bread, even though he never would, because it's nicer. And once he said hamotzi, he's now allowed to eat it for the rest of the meal. Mishnah Buah has a hard time with this. And he says, listen, only when there's a, ho- uh, a guest. but there's no guest, this wouldn't be allowed. Halapelet writes here, that he disagrees with Mishan Boah. It has nothing to do with the guest. Halapel in source 7 says, The origin of this whole halakha comes to Tumat Adeshin. Over there, it's obvious that it's even without a guest. Because saying a barakha, nice food, is so important, it's permitted to eat the non Jewish bread, even though you don't normally eat non Jewish bread. But Mishnah Bura is saying, it's better only to do with the guest. That's From here you see against the parents, that this gezera against the non-Jewish bread was not unanimously accepted by the Jewish community. The main point is, that's really permissible. Permissible. And that is the custom. That all of these Chachamim said it that way. And the Rambam limits this permission only to commercial bread and not to residential bread, which we agree with.
Maran talks about in Yudalit, the yogurt of non-Jews, it has bread crumbs in it. You don't have to worry about it. And somebody who's careful, they don't eat bread baked by non-Jews. He's allowed to eat from the same bowl as somebody who is careful. Give me an example. Because in the Western culture, we rarely eat like Jewish people. Let's say I invite my friend to my favorite hummus restaurant in Jerusalem. You know what I'm talking about? They bring you a bowl, fresh hummus. In the middle of the bowl is ground beef or shawarma or whatever you might have in there. And they hand you a stack of pitot and you and your friend are eating from the same bowl. Why? Why? Because that's how we eat. If you do that today, of course, they would look at you funny. But that was, in the olden days, we would be sitting on the floor eating with our hands. Now we uh, cut up the pito maybe with a knife and we are a little, pretend to be a little more cultured. But this is a scenario Malan is talking about. Now, the bread that he's eating, I don't eat. Or the bread that I'm eating, he can't eat. We're allowed to eat from the same bowl. Then, this decree doesn't carry over to the crumbs of non-Pat Israel bread that is now floating in the hummus, it doesn't work that way. And therefore, uh, Rama says that it's any type of mixture. We're not worried, therefore, about Pachal Goyim. Rama says, Yes, there are those who say, that a person who's careful about this halakha, and he eats with friends that are not so careful about this, he's allowed to eat with them, even for the simple reason of not fighting with them. Don't fight with your friends. They're eating pach and You also eat pach and goyim. Then in Monikana Shalom, Swim says the Ramah, don't now take this to other places. If your friends are all eating lobster legs together, you don't do it. That's not the way you do it. If your, your friends are having pork chops together, don't eat pork chops with them. But pach and goyim is the type of situation where they permitted him to eat in that place so that he would not fight with his friends. Tedzain, Yesh Mishaomer. This halakha is important. I get phone calls all the time. You have people that come to SeaWorld in San Diego or they come to vacation in San Diego. So always, uh, we walk around here, you're at SeaWorld. Have we ever passed? Take my kids. You see this guy, he comes there, long black coat, pale down to his chin, big beard, but he's wearing a baseball cap so nobody will know that he's Jewish. He's a, he's a Jewish in disguise. Yeah? And this, there's a certain like, understanding that when I'm traveling, halakha doesn't apply. So there, and all of us have this problem. You go to a place, and never you go to a place for vacation, there's no tefillah, there's no Shabbat, there's no... Why do you go there for vacation? You can go there for... Why do you drag your family away from Bede Knesset for Shabbat? You go to places in the night, Bede Knesset, go. But there are people, Halakha doesn't apply to them when they're traveling. It says, Maran, Yesh Mishomel, there's one who says, Shanishar Mipad Goim, that is somebody who's careful not to eat non-Jewish bread. But now he's traveling. In Yesh Pachel Israel, Adad Minim Yamtin, that he should wait uh, if, there's, if there's Jewish bread that's coming up, it'll be there and within a certain amount of time. He should wait until he gets to the place where there's Jewish bread. I already told you about the custom is to be lenient and that we don't wait for Jewish bread. We just eat bread right away. So now, I finished with you all of the halakhot and shpanawi. And I'm going to deal with minhagi right now. But I want to summarize what I've told you. Both the Rambam and Maran share with us there is a rabbinic law that prohibits eating bread from non-Jews, whether that's commercial bread or residential bread. But we see from the fact that there is a minhag in so many places to eat bread, commercial bread from non-Jews, I'm ignoring Ashkenazi custom right now, to eat commercial bread from non-Jews, that itself already shows us, like Maran said, like the Ramban said, 
it already has shown us that this decree didn't, clearly didn't spread everywhere. And because it was not unanimously accepted, there are very many situations in which eating bread from non-Jews is completely okay. So long as that is the minhag of the place where you are in. And Rambam brought a little bit of that, and Malan embellished on that very much. And then we have the standard of nationalism, which is not only are they permissive when it comes to commercial bread, but they are permissive even when it comes to residential bread in many, many places. And that is based seemingly on the Mordechai and the Tosafot, who view that there's no difference between commercial bread and residential bread. Now the question we have to ask ourselves. So what does the mean have? We know what Shukhan says. We know what the Rambam says. But so much of this is dependent. Are we following the strict letter of the law? Or is there a minhag? And it's not, it's not just a minhag. So God forbid you shouldn't understand for me that minhag overrides halakha. You know very much how I feel about that. Halakha is halakha. Here you're talking about the codifiers of halakha telling you that this halakha does not apply in a place where there is a minhag that permits it. Because of this, this decree of our rabbis clearly didn't spread in the Jewish community. Now, whether that was intentional or not, that was the conversation of the Gemara. But intentional or unintentional, that's what the Ramban says. We're not clear if a Bedin permitted it or if people just rose up and, and did it anyways because they couldn't keep this. Regardless, we are today in a place where there is a minhag not to eat or yes to eat, and we have to discuss, so what is a minhag where we are? On page 13. Alaperetz writes about the Knesta Gemara. Katav, he writes, Ve'ir Konstantina. In the city of Constantine, in all of these countries, when he says all of these countries, which region of the world is he referring to? North Africa, the Sephardi kind of world around North Africa and, and where, the Middle East. Where's, where's Constantine? Presumably in Turkey. Algeria, no? Right. Turkey. Well, you're shaking your head. Tell me what you're thinking. I think it's Algeria, is it not? Turkey. I'm pretty sure that it's in Turkey. Turkey. But if I'm wrong, it's for sure in Turkey, yes? Constantinople's in Turkey. That's 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 Istanbul. Constantine's North Africa. No. What is known to me when Kesa Gulas of Constantina, he's referring to Turkey. If I'm wrong, someone should correct me. So all of this region, the whole we can call it the Balkan region, the Ottoman Empire, wherever area I'm referring to. All of these places of Sephardim, they're all places where they permit non-Jewish bread. We're not so clear why they're permissive in this matter. has a problem. So I don't understand. In our places, we have Jewish bakers that make even nicer bread than the non-Jews. And I heard from my rabbi, the reason for this permissive attitude, in a place where there's a Jewish baker, and therefore you can't buy from a non-Jewish baker, that only applies if the Jewish baker has enough bread to cover all the Jews in the city. But being that the Jewish baker can't keep up with the demand of the Jewish community, then the Jewish people are allowed, therefore, to go buy bread from non-Jewish bakers. And that seems to be the rationale why in this region of the world, the Jewish people uh, bought um, non-Jewish commercial bread. Rabbi Abdallah Sameh. 
I have, I'm very lucky that his great-great-grandson is in my kima. Kadab is he writes, Shekel nahagu bebagdad, the custom is in Baghdad. Shekoni mipalter goy, that they buy from a non-Jewish baker, afilu bimkom sheyesh palter Israel, even in a place where there is a Jewish baker. Vegam hu yoter yafemi shel palter goy, even when the Jewish bread is nicer than the non-Jewish bread. Shim hayu koni makon mipalter Israel, because if the Jews would all buy from the Jewish baker, the bread would become very expensive. And therefore, for, for any reason, we always buy bread from non-Jewish bakers, even when their bread is less nice than the Jewish bread. And, and that's the custom in Baghdad. So I'll tell you that it's like the, the old city of Yerushalayim. There are these beautiful bakeries make rogalach and chalot. Now right next door, there's an Arab bakery. All he knows how to make is pito. He has no ability to make any other baked product aside from pito. I would buy pita there all the time. And his bread is five shekels for a pita. And the other guy sells 15 shekels for a pita. And at the end of the day, I'm a student who is, uh, it's a shad of chat for me. But yeah, we would buy bread from that baker next door. Now, if you wanted to be machmir, you could blow on his fire. And then everything would be good for us. But then, so we already have in the region of Turkey, we have in Baghdad, the custom is to be permissive. Let's see what happens when the Benish Chai, who is a Kabbalist by nature, deals with this minhag. The Benish Chai writes in Parashat Chukat of the second year of the Benish Chai, There are those who are lenient to buy from a non-Jewish commercial baker. Even when there is a Jewish baker. And that is that custom here in Baghdad. So he's confirming that which will be Abdullah S.W. That the custom in Baghdad is to eat the bread from the Goyim. And our rabbi, Darizam, Machmir, he's stringent. Even if you're not sure whether the bread is Jewish bread or non-Jewish bread, Darizal wouldn't eat it. I told you at the beginning of the shiul that the custom in all of the countries was to eat commercial bread from non-Jews. And there was only one community that did not eat non-Jewish bread. Which community have I identified? The Mekubalim. The Mekubalim who followed Darizal, they were careful not to eat non-Jewish bread. I remember asking how parents many years ago. He told us, when you become a Mekubal, you could stop eating non-Jewish bread. Until then, uh, all the Nihag in all of the places was to eat non-Jewish bread. In Ashkenaz, for sure. But in Sephardic countries, also. Who recorded that? Mekubali, Rabbi Abdullah Samech, and the Benishchai. The Chida. Also, the Chida writes, also that in Constantina, the non-Jewish bread is consumed, and he quotes again the Tzedek Gilna. Rabbi Yoni, I think Rabbi Yosef is correct. Um, Constantine was the emperor uh, who both established Constantinople, which is Istanbul, but Constantine is actually a region which would modern day be Algeria. Though it could be in this context, it's being used to refer to Turkey. Where did Tzedek live? Can you look that up for me? Yes, Knesset Agdona. He was yeah. Where? Ishmael. Yeah. That's what I think. Also. I thought he was a Turkish Hassan. He goes to Turkish. I'm doubting, but Constantine in modern Hebrew in, in the modern world is referring to areas in Algeria. Okay, so then all of you, all of you are right, but Rabbi uh, he lives in uh, Turkey, and that's likely what he's referring to. Rabbi Yosef Masas, they've redone the Tishuvot of Rabbi Yosef Masas, you know, for years. 
I couldn't get my hands on the writings of Leo Sinasas. Some of them scattered here, scattered there, all kinds of different places. And the one set that I was missing for years, uh, there were two books that I was missing. One was a book on, on um, Githin from Rabiya Sabasas. In the UK, you have a Dayan. I don't, mention that. I don't know who he is. I don't know him. But he published a four-volume series on the laws of Githin. And the last volume has a republished edition of the Halachot of Rabiya Sabasas. And then I was once in Muncie, Muncie, New York. Yeah, my wife was finishing her master's degree. And she was staying in Muncie. And I would come visit her from San Diego. It's a five and a half hour flight. I said, so where do we want to go? I want to eat. I said, I want to see a bookstore. You know, Jewish communities. I have food at home. I want to see a bookstore. I don't have a bookstore in San Diego. So she took me to a, a Jewish bookstore over there. And I came into the bookstore. And I asked them, is there a Sephardic section here? Somewhere I could find books that are not, you know, Rabbi so-and-so in the weekly parsha. And they said, ah, we don't really have Sephardic books here. And like, the way he said it was with such zilzul, like, like, we don't even bother to carry your books. That was the way he said it. I said, okay, you must have something Sephardic. Like, yeah, we have a few Benish Chais and Ravavadyas in the back. So I said, I'll go ahead that direction and I'll, I'll see what he has. The truth is, he had nothing. Not much. Like that. Really, a Benish Chai that he had. And so I looked at the rest of the store to see. I don't read much of the other books that he has there. And at a certain point, I said, yeah, I can't believe that a bookstore this large wouldn't have even one other Sephardic book. And I was, I was like upset at myself. You know, why did I come here? I wasted my time. I was holding my son Elkanan. At the time, he was a baby. He wasn't walking yet. And, and he, I held him in my hands, and he dropped his bottle on the floor. And I'm like, oh, man, the bottle fell. I'm going to make a mess. I got down on the floor to get the bottle. Like, it's like uh, one of those Hasidic stories. I see there on the bottom shelf, covered in dust, three volumes of letters of Rabiya Sarmazas. These books have been out of print since the 80s. And you can't find them anywhere. You have money, you can't find them. They don't sell them. Until today, you can't find a set of those books new, for sure not used. If somebody will sell them to you, it's only because they died and their kids don't know what to do with the books. So I went to the store and I picked this book up. I ran to them and I said, hey, you have Sephardi books. How much do you want for these books? He says, you know how long those books have been sitting there? We put them in the bottom because nobody even wants them. Uh, give me 60 bucks and you can go. I gave him $60. I made a shachianu outside of the store. Shachianu. Thank you for letting me find these books. Ever since then, the halachic letters, not the rest of the letters, but the halachic letters of Rabbi Yosef Masas have been reprinted in four volumes by his grandson in Israel. And you can actually purchase these fairly inexpensive. So they cost, a set is maybe $100 for all four volumes of this book. And it's worth getting your hands on these books. They, they did a nice job with the print and the, and the vowels and the footnotes and everything else. In there, Rabbi Yosef Masas, and that's why I give you two sources. So number three, it says either if you look in the original edition or in the newer edition. Sha'al Kibodo, you have asked me. Binyan Pacha Nukhid. Regarding non-Jewish bread. Can I eat the bread of a baker? Says uh says, And here in all the cities of Algeria, that's where he was, even though he was Moroccan, he was a rabbi in Algeria. No matter what the situation is, they permit it. And he brings from the name of Kham there. Shachin Bashat Aminhad. This is a very early minhag of Salavadim. It's not something that just happened in these cities due to lack of Torah observance. Then I heard this also from very devout Ashkenazi travelers who traveled through here. Then all of the cities of Ashkenaz, they all buy non-Jewish commercial bread. 
no matter what the situation is. And whoever wants to be lenient about this has lost nothing in halakha. And there's a lot to say about this. But I'm very afraid of what will happen to me if I speak about this. Because people are not able to agree with each other on these matters. And goodbye. The Shurizim has more to say about how permitted this is. But I'm afraid to put it down on paper. If you know anything about Rabbi Yosef Masas, he was afraid of very few things. But clearly this issue was such a hot topic that he didn't want to stick his nose inside of it. I know what time it is. If you could just give me four more minutes, five more minutes, I will finish with you this last source that I want to pull up for you. And that is from the Kav HaChaim. Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer, he wrote a commentary in the Shulchan Aruch, Kav HaChaim. It's very prevalent in the Sephardic community. It's almost like a Mishnah Bilat, you can imagine, on the Shulchan Aruch, the first section and a little bit of Yoreda. And he writes here, he quotes all of these things that we know, uh, that in Baghdad and so on and so forth, and in Constantine, that all of these places were permissive regarding bread baked by non-Jews. And then he writes at the bottom of page 13, Even though this is the custom, There are like God-fearing individuals, that they don't eat bread from non-Jews at all. That I don't even eat bread from, or he's quoting we don't even eat bread from Jewish bakers. Why? Because they're ignoramuses. They are not careful to strain the worms out of the water that they use. We don't even, we don't even eat from the non-Jewish bakeries, we don't even eat nothing to do with Kabbalah, everything to do with the fact that there are worms in the water that they use when they bake bread in Jewish bakeries. And therefore, this maybe is the first time we're seeing a push for Kashrut agencies. There should be a group of people that are in charge of straining the water, supervising the bakers to make sure that the chalot or pitot or lafot that you buy don't have wiggly worms in the water when you uh, bake your bread. Now, you might say, okay, so we, that's where it comes from. We're strict because we follow this and we don't eat bread baked by non-Jews. So let me show you what else the Apple claims to us. He says here in Source 5, He quotes the Arizal. The Arizal says that you can't eat non-Jewish bread. But again, this is Hasidut. It's Kabbalah. Because in general, the Kabbalists don't eat uh, non-Jewish baked bread. But that's not where it ends. If you look in source 6, Here in Jerusalem, there, is, there are worms in the well water. And many people, presumably they came from Baghdad, where they buy commercial bread. And now they're in Jerusalem, they buy non-Jewish commercial bread. And they're mistaken. And they need all of our bread with warm water, without uh, filtering it. Because the Arabs, they don't care about the worms in the water. They eat them, but we can't eat them. And he says, More than that, now there are new flowers that are infested with worms, big worms, small worms. Then the non-Jews, they don't care about the worms in the water, they don't care about the worms in the flour, and the bread that you buy, even though it may be kasher because of pasher goyim, 
it's not kasher because of the worms. Well, the fize, and therefore, because of that, in any city which has a problem of worms, you cannot buy commercial bread. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Now, 